Individually, they are a force to be reckoned with. But when they join together, they become Unplugged Radio. Prepare to be swept off your feet as Greg Person, the lover, takes the stage. But wait, what illusion is this? It is no trick. It is Jake Hutton, magician, for your viewing pleasure. Look out! The sensational sensei himself, Mike Rossi, warrior on display. Bow down and grovel at his feet as John Vanas, king, utters his decree. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Unplugged Radio. I'm your host, Greg. I'm your host, John. And I am a guest, Jake. Wow, that's from the past. So should I tell my like gamer origin story to make f- listeners familiar with me? Or <laughs> I don't think that's necessary tonight. We'll skip that part. Sure, sure, sure. Thanks uh, for having great... me back on, guys. Yeah, it's great yeah, to have you back, Jake. I mean, we we've obviously like we chat all the time, so it's not mm-hmm. like we've been uh, disconnected. But Jake hasn't actually been on the podcast, so uh, a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been listening and uh you know, seemed like a good time to hop on. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And Jake, I saw you just had a uh anniversary recently, so congratulations. Not really, actually. Thank you though. Um <laughs> I I'll, I'll explain cuz it'll make more sense. So okay, I was every, confused. <laughs> every year for our wedding anniversary, my wife and I paint a new like group of miniatures uh we started in our first year wedding anniversary and we thought it was fun so it was like just keep doing it and we've basically just been digging into my first edition malifo box and just pulling stuff that we think is cool that we want to paint each year um because just like spooky stuff i like spooky stuff malifo is great for that but apparently after four years we, we hit the dregs of like she wasn't super gung-ho for anything i had Ooh. Um, so we'd pick models and just kept putting it off. Our anniversary is October 19th. <laughs> we just painted our miniatures last weekend, which would have been January like 29th. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, All right. So that's why yeah. I thought you had your anniversary then because uh exactly. But we were painting, you know, um D models. We bought some different like just stuff off the shelf rather than using backlog because I was painting uh one of WizKids like uh giant skeletons. It's like a giant but a skeleton. Um and she was like, That's awesome. Why can't we paint that for our anniversary? And I was like, we can. These are like fifteen dollars. Let's go to the store. We can pick like three things off. We'll just do it. Um and so she picked a I don't know what it is. It's like a it's like an aberration with like a mouth in its stomach it's like a void tear or something uh but it was cool that's a D thing i've never yeah i know i was like i feel okay. like i've heard of most D monsters in passing but it's a D thing okay cool that works nice so that um that actually you know sets us up nicely for hobby updates uh aside from your anniversary project uh that had procrastinated on what what have you been painting 
the past couple. I've months. actually I was really inspired by your um like 2022 year in review episode, specifically John talking about switching his painting technique to try to really emphasize volume at a good tabletop quality rather than very few at a very high quality. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I've been blowing up our personal chats asking about the Army Painter speed paints, some of the new contrast paint colors. And I bit the bullet and bought some of Army Painter's new speed, well, not new speed paints because they're not that new anymore, but speed paints. Um, I bought, I was going to buy the Mega speed paint set, which has all of the colors, but I instead bought the starter set with the thought that, like, I'd try them out, see if I'm like them, fill in gaps where I need them. Um, so I've been paint, painting quite a bit just to, like, try out those different colors. I'm actually thinking I'm going to write a review once I get. I've painted maybe 12 models with them, give or take, so far, and I want to get a bigger variety in the types of models I'm painting. I've been painting mostly Massive Darkness 2 miniatures, um, which are, like, uh, cool board game pieces. Um, The ones I have are, like, ghosty figures and sort of, like, storm elementals. Um, Mm -hmm. So they take the speed painting techniques pretty cool, but I also paint that giant with it. And then all of my anniversary figures. Uh, I've been really impressed. I've really liked them. Uh, let them dry for a bit afterwards, and I dry brush them up. And I'm like, oh, that looks pretty good. Now, Jake, have you been painting these things just for the sake of painting them? Or are they for um, a game? I don't know. Um, what massive, what's Massive Darkness? It is like a dungeon crawl board game. Um, okay. My dad's a big Kickstarter person, um, and he has a bad habit of Kickstarting board games, not playing them. A lot of people have that habit. Yeah, <laughs> and so he kickstarted it. Hard Dark- to imagine. Right, right? <laughs> he kickstarted this game, Massive Darkness 2, um, and he like did the max level kickstarting, so he'd get all the expansions. And like the core box set has maybe like 50, 60 miniatures in it, but each other box set has maybe like 10 or 12. Some of them are one big model a lot. Often, though, it's like one central model, minions, and like two new heroes kind of thing. Um, and we're going to Deep Creek with him for his birthday to play a uh, board games all weekend. And so I wanted to paint some of these up for him, sort of combo birthday and also to test out these paints. Nice. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like a good reason to do it. Yeah. And I figure board game pieces are the perfect thing to try a bunch of different colors on because it doesn't matter if they're, co- they're coherent. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, it's it's different. Uh, and Jake, actually, I've been experiencing the same thing in some capacity, painting like uh, one-off models or small squads of models that are not part of an army project. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I don't like the colors. Doesn't matter. There's only six of these guys ever. Yeah. So yeah. whatever. It's... <laughs> you're, not, <laughs> you're not married to that uh, and, color scheme or technique for right. a long-term project. So Exactly. And actually, it's been keeping me from doing long-term projects. I have multiple like purchased armies now sitting on a shelf that i i don't want to get into because i don't want to commit to the to the colors really that's the only thing holding me back is the, is the color choice it's like i'm gonna paint that purple or i'm gonna paint that red i can't decide i'll paint something else <laughs> yeah, so but anyway I, you probably don't have that problem yet Jay. um i mean i've been in midway through finishing a uh, vampire on pegasus for my <laughs> undead army and I stopped because I was like, well, I have to really get the red right to fit the army. Or I could just army paint or just random stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yep. Do. 
And you, um, I know it was, a, it was a little while ago now, but you were working on some herd models. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I have, um, I've had like a Beastman army that Mike Austin traded me for some of my Dark Elf stuff uh, right in the middle of COVID. And it's sort of been my, I'll get to these eventually project and eventually sort of happened. Um, and I, I did like a test paint scheme and some test basing that I'm pretty happy with. Um, and was planning on trying to get them ready for an ambush league we were running locally here that sort of fizzled. Um, so I've, I've got some maybe like 12 models painted for it. So not a ton, really. Uh, but the ones I have, I like. I've got it's uh, two of the old Pestigore models, some of the Ungor and Gore. Um, and the color scheme is like grays and yellow face paint and tattoos and then like forest green but they're going on my brain sort of processes as like a wasteland table kind of thing and so it's um gw makes like a cracked martian earth texture paint Mm -hmm. um so that's what i'm using as the primary thing with like slate heads on spikes some other kind of tufts and rocky bits but the main thing is just going to be that like deep red which i think will contrast really nicely with the um the the grays and the yellows and stuff yeah that sounds good who knows when i'll get them done but hopefully if i you know can find some army painter paints that do what i want it'll be a little bit quicker (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly exactly what about you guys what have you been up to Well, I just got back from a GT yesterday. Um, I went to the Dead of Winter GT, so that's been that was fun. I don't think I want to talk about that much though, because we'll probably talk about that once Mike gets back. Um, but I've been painting a ton of stuff lately. Um, I've been posting pictures. I've been better about posting pictures of it on on the Facebook page lately. Uh, I've been ripping through kill teams. I painted um, some Eldar. I painted some Orcs. I painted some Imperial Breachers. I painted a big terrain set um some some empire dust for this last tournament um yeah i just been ripping through projects i'm assembling some space marines right now yeah see i want to get to that point that's what i (laughs) (laughs) i want to be like yeah you know it's been three weeks so i painted two kill teams a little bit of terrain another piece or two for undead you know no big deal (laughs) <laughs> the thing that's slowing me down the most right now is actually assembly. It takes me longer to mm-hmm. assemble the, the models than it does to paint them in a lot of cases. What Otherwise, do you use? Do you airbrush a base coat on, or what do you use for your base coat? Um, I've been experimenting with different techniques, trying to find... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say my favorite necessarily, but just different things, because I think for different models, you might even want to use different stuff. So, mm-hmm. depending on the colors... I, if it, all right, if it's something like a Space Marine, I would airbrush them, you know, blue or green or whatever. Sure. Um, for a lot of the models I have just using a Zenithril through the airbrush, like the Orcs I did that way, uh, it comes out really bright. It's, it's nice in that regards. Um, the last couple of things I painted, I used a more of a, uh, a slap chop method. So it's, it's like putting a Zenithril on, but with progressive layers of dry brushing. I did four or five colors maybe from okay. like like and not black either i went like a like the eldar i just did i went from a dark blue like midnight blue mm-hmm. up to a light blue not even maybe maybe white is the last step mm-hmm. um and that provided more 
you know, more like depth to the color. I, when I look at my orcs next to them, the orcs are kind of goofy looking because the colors are like really bright and pop out. And the, and it's there's not as much shading to them, whereas the Eldar came out with much deeper shadows. But you catch a little bit of that chalkiness of the dry brushing. And so it, like the colors, I think, are, are more dynamic, like contrast wise, but it's also a little bit dirtier. And that's that's OK. They're just different ways to do it. I wouldn't say one is John. I think you cut out there, or I did. Oh, you did. I heard him, and and Cra- more importantly, Craig heard him. Craig heard him. As long as Craig heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke. Don't ask. Um, yeah. Anyway, Jake. So I've been I've been experimenting with with a couple of different ways. Either like a black base coat and then dry brush up, or a zenithal with airbrush, or start with a, the airbrush and then move to dry brushing, and really just. Honestly, they all work. It just it depends on what the effect you want to get at the end is. Uh, Sorry, so my, I, my mic just had issues there. I missed all the end of that, but cool. <laughs> oh, okay. I have to listen to it on the recap. Sorry. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, it, but it's been yeah, it's been fun to experiment. Uh, Greg, I know you, you know, paint speed painted an army. Um, it was two, probably two years ago, right? Yep. They did the ogre ogre project, and so you know you've you've done that, kind of know what that feels like, but now the project you're working on now is very much not that. Do you think, in the long run, you'll go back to a, um, you know, get it done, put it on the table style? Ah, I think um, what I have as a basic outline in my head right now is to keep working on dwarfs get them in a state where they're playable for tournaments and I mentioned last time that uh, I'll I'll have 1995 points for unplugged uh this April and uh then should have 2300 points by crossroads you know uh, coming in September and then step away from that to do speed paint stuff. And then instead of, presumably, instead of doing another army to as high a standard as this dwarf project is, just when I want to paint something to a high standard, paint more dwarfs. <laughs> because there's still plenty of other great models from the, you know, the lines I'm pulling from that I would be interested in painting. And, you know, I can do a unit, a regiment, a troop, maybe a, God bless me, a, ho- a horde or something like that. Um, when I feel the need to to try, you know, and, and get something a, as good as I can. But then the sacrifice to quality, we've talked about it, and but it, it bears repeating every single time. Uh, because maybe you haven't heard the previous episodes or maybe you heard, but the message didn't get through. But like... When you do it purposely, like the ways that John was just describing, sacrifice to quality is minimal compared to the time saved. So it doesn't look as good as painting to your highest standard, but it looks marginally worse, but takes infinitely less time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a bit of an exaggeration, but you know. Yeah, we're, John and I probably spend a similar amount of time painting per week. We both are painting quite a bit at this point, but I'm getting one to two total miniatures done, and he's getting, you know, 
five times that, that amount. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, did, did you see the pictures I posted of the Eldar Corsairs the other day? Yeah. 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 I painted those in six days. Yeah. Uh, the whole squad, it was four. I sat down in, in four separate times to paint them for a couple of hours each. So I, I spent under, I don't know, I, uh, definitely under 10 hours for the whole squad. So less than an hour per model. Um, it was probably more like eight hours for the whole unit. And like, I'm just, you know, th yeah, they're not perfect, but I'm really happy with how they look for the amount of time I invested in them. Of course. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, <laughs> it so, doesn't make me want to go back to, um, to painting another army that I have, unfortunately, that, that could use some updates. I'm like, oh, am I going to spend 50 hours painting that unit? Exactly. Right. So uh, it means that when you paint something that you're really excited for, you like can spend as much time as you want to, but not feel like you're getting nothing done the rest of the time because you're not doing that with every model. You're just like, OK, I'm just taking my time with this, you know, one yes. tell or one thing. Yes. And that's been my strategy, actually. Well, you're, you're talking about the details. I when I'm doing these these little units, whether they're. Um, you know, because I bet some the fantasy stuff I painted recently was Empire Dust, right? And so I'm or a 40k unit or whatever. I'm just picking like I'm trying to get the majority of the model unit, whatever, done to just a you know a reasonable standard. And then I pick something. I pick like the the face or the weapon or the I don't know, the flag or whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend the extra hour on this one bit so that it really pops. And then that's the thing you see when you look at the model. Right. And you honestly, like the rest of the, I don't know, like I've got a, a unit of um, Black Legion on the shelf over there. And most of them are just black with gold trim armor. There's like not a lot going on. But then mm -hmm. the leader has a, like a, you know, a face and he's got this blended like, like a uh, multicolored sword. And that's all you notice, really. You don't even really notice the rest of the unit. So it's right. <laughs> like, and I don't know if they were beautiful, if you would notice them, but I think not. <laughs> or if they would it'd be like the only way you'd notice it is if someone was really pausing for a long time and looking which rarely happens right We're, yeah exactly and is it is it worth is it worth it yeah. right but so it's interesting because i have like you someone who is a great painter who's adapting their skill set to get more models on and then one of my friends locally um is also a great painter, but he's really pushing himself into being like a semi-competitive painter. And so he spends more time than any of us on like two or three pieces a year, basically. <laughs> and we'll be like, you know, just bouncing between them and show me like, hey, what do you think about this as the backdrop working and stuff? And it's really funny seeing like the different people I know who all like painting, but for different reasons, really adapting their style. Cause he used to paint armies too, but other than his commission work, I don't think I've seen him paint an army in like four years. Hey dude, it's, it's a progression. Um, the whole, the whole art thing is just, uh, you know, you get what you want out of it, whatever's, exactly. whatever's giving you energy and making you feel good, then do that. And I don't knock anybody for adapting no. their style, trying different stuff. It's, it's all good. And he's crushing it. He's getting um, bronze. He got, I think, a bronze or silver medal at the Nova Open Paint Contest, which draws like wow. a ton of really good painters. Yeah. Um, it was for the Journeyman class, but still, you know, like very. Cool. But it's just it's really funny seeing the differences in me going. Hmm, I think I want to be part of that camp over there with all the painted armies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, 
So Jake, now that you've been experimenting, have you found any favorite colors? Like, um, is, is there one that jumps out at you? Be like, this one's amazing. I love the way it. I love the shading. I love the the coverage, the the vibrancy, whatever. I like so many of them that the I've more than ones that I. Well, I, I have one clear favorite, and it might be the model itself. The giant I painted has this really bright orange beard that I think turned out really nicely. And that's just an orange um, speed paint with one dry brush. Okay. But it has such good like depth and vibrancy to it that I'm like, oh, and orange is not an easy color to paint. So that's no. been really cool. That may be a, an uh, example where the model really works well for that, too. Like it's, I think the, so. it's, it's the right place to put it so it really gets a chance to shine. And it's well. a super textured surface because it's a beard, you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, the Undead Boy in me can't help but love how nice this is for bone paint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, like, contrast has, like, a bone color. I've used it pretty heavily, but I've never been wowed by it. But the bone speed paint color had me looking and going, I could paint a horde of skeletons in a week mm, if it was already that. Mm, yeah, right? that sounds and it would look it would look better than the skeletons I'm fielding right now that were like, <laughs> you know granted they were dipped in dry brush and stuff like that, but I could paint a horde of them probably in a week with this this army painter speed paint. Yeah. Um, totally. And you know, get the majority of it done, hit it with a dry brush, boom, done, and it looked pretty nice. So those are, I think, the two standouts. I think the one that I'm least impressed with is there's like a darker blue. There's a couple of blues, and I feel they're they're really close. High Lord blue. Yeah. Um, certain surfaces, I think it works really well on, and and other surfaces, I've had some issues with. So like, I have okay. this ghost lady who has a really rippled cloak. And it could be to the like pre dry brushing I did with the grays and whites didn't help with this color. Mm. But like, I really like how it turned out in this cloak. But then I have like this other lady who's a like ghostly, and I did like some GW ghost colors, but I wanted her like body itself to not be just ghost. So I painted it the High Lord blue, and it just sort of looks like a blob of blue. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm... It might be the, I don't think I've used that color too much yet. Um, I've mixed it with other ones, but I haven't used mm. it by itself. Could be the could be the surface you put it over though, yeah. or the or the dry brushing. Yeah, and that's you know I've I've got to still experiment around, but I think the the orange and the bone are the things so far that like I've seen and been like, ooh, you could you could make a whole army out of this. Like, <laughs> cool, very cool. Um, I have found a. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about paint products before right but one that i've i grabbed recently i liked it so much i went out and bought another bottle of it and gave it to jeff our, our, our buddy jeff and i was like jeff you have to try this paint <laughs> um it's one that i see uh all of the internet youtubers using hmm. um they don't endorse it but i see them it's on their color like uh like you see them having it they just it's there it's out. in the video and they're like here's you know i mix this with this or whatever it's called it's an ak color and it's called ice yellow and it is, it is what you mix highlights with. You you don't you don't use a bone color like you know bleach bone was like your classic. Right. This is what you add mix. No no, it's ice yellow. It is the color you highlight with now. Um, it's just a really like uh, light. Yeah, it's not a bright yellow. It's a a pale like white yellow, and it makes awesome highlights. You mix it with anything. It's like magic. 
and I recommend everybody go get a bottle of it. So. I just googled it here. Yeah. <laughs> only, it's only three ninety nine, folks. It's only three ninety nine, endorsed by uh, John Vanas of Unplug Radio. Yep. Not sponsored. Um, <laughs> Greg, you haven't uh, experimented with anything new recently. No, I've been <laughs> slowly painting the same models. Uh, it fits the, the month, dwarf theme, though, right? Like the yeah. the tried and, tro- true tried and true techniques are the. <laughs> yeah. He grumbles actually, while he does it. Yeah, uh, this newfangled elf technology, <laughs> bead paint, bah. Um, yeah, I let's see. In the past month since we last recorded, I painted uh, what was probably one or two more uh, of the Dwarf Thunderer models to finish off my second troop of sharpshooters. I painted an awesome uh, Doomseeker model, if you uh, remember or know what that is, to be my battle driller. Such a good model. Um, And that model probably took, you were like, I painted this 10 guys in like 10 hours. It probably took me 10 hours to paint that battle driller. (laughs) Um, which was a 75 point you know uh, (laughs) but it is an out of print model so if you're going to spend that's the thing with your army though it's like so many of these models like if you ever want to repaint them in a couple years they're going to be even more expensive right i have i have i have lots of extras of everything um, I have oh, all, there we there's go. So four different Doom Seekers sculpts. I have all four of them. <laughs> You've got all oh, yeah. an animal. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know, the, a lot of these I've had for a long time since they they came out, and I've just had hmm. them. Um. So I did those, and then I did the thing that I've done. I think in every army project I've ever embarked on which is that I hit a point where I was like, why am I painting infantry? I could paint large infantry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I started work on, and I, I'm like two thirds of the way through here, um, a horde of earth elementals um, using the, I don't think it's actually called mom miniatures, but that's, sure what it looks like mom miniaturas for the spanish company that makes the resin uh dwarf golems that at least in uh around the united states i've seen many dwarf players with these models they're really cool um so i've been painting them uh because you know they're 200 plus points and you get five of them uh, at least that's how many I'm painting to fit on a horde. And a, and a big miniature doesn't really take that much longer to paint than an infantry. Well, no, it doesn't. Um, like you, it depends you on the, the level of detail. But you know, if it's yeah. if it's an ogre, you know, it's not that intricate. Or in this case, if it's a if it's a statue, <laughs> it's not that intricate. And I I've taken care to mix in. Sometimes, I mean, if you look at the way, like on the Mom Miniatures website, it's painted. It's literally just painted stone. The whole thing is just stone, and then there's a glowing effect on the eyes and on the weapons. And I was like, Nah, I'm not you know. Yeah, you can. I'm not interested that. in that. Like, yeah. I I want yeah. it to match more closely. So it still obviously looks like a stone, uh, statue or golem, but it, it has the colors from army, um, still represented in it. So 
I gotta get that horde done. I, I finished three of the five, and I'm like almost done with the fourth. Then I gotta do the base. And then to finish off 1995, I have to paint a second organ gun and a stone priest. But the stone priest is already is already base coated and washed because some of these models uh, were base coated and washed. Uh, in 2016 <laughs> for a different project and then they've just been like sitting there since then um so he i i think i need to like hit him with one of those cans of condensed air to make sure there's no dust <laughs> clinging but uh then i'll you know i'll have 1995 so i'm expecting by the time we record um oh depends when we record the february episode but uh within a month's time like a month's actual time, I should have uh, 1995 finished. So yeah, not be ready bad. for unplugged GT. Yeah, that's the plan. And uh, you can see pictures of all the things I just referenced. Uh, and coincidentally, at any time you guys uh, post painted miniatures on Instagram, I re uh, I um, promote it in my story. So if you follow awesome. uh, Unplugged Radio K O W on Instagram, you can see my stuff. And if on Jake or Mike, heaven forbid ever, uh, you know, post painted pictures, you'll see those there too. <laughs> well, uh, let's make a little transition here and talk about, uh, books. We want to do books and, uh, D and D since we got Jake back, uh, on the pod tonight. So, yeah, and we've uh, been doing some D and D too. So it's good. yeah, we've been doing. I've been doing a lot of D and D. I guess we all have, and I've also been doing a lot of reading. So, uh, Jake, you can start us off. What are some books that you would recommend to our fine listeners? Sure. Well, since I'm on here, I've got to talk about anime, right? Like, you know, it just it has to happen. It wouldn't happen <laughs> without you. Let's put it that way. Right. I, I know. <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, I just wanted to really quickly years ago on the podcast, I mentioned that it was going to be my goal for the year to catch up to one piece. I think it was two years ago. Maybe it was three years ago. Are we talking to clarify the anime or the manga? The, the right? manga, okay. the manga. Yeah. Well, as of December 31st of last year, I caught up to the manga, which I'm very happy about. Which is, so how many <laughs> volumes did you read? Um, so I read 101 volumes. Whoa, that's a lot. Um, over the course of like two and a half, three right, years. Right. Um, they're still the coming seri- out. They're still coming out. Yeah. So I'm already back behind because I let like the way they write is that like I try to let up a decent amount build up because every manga chapter is written in a way to like try to get you to read the next one. Of course, so even yeah. though they're telling coherent stories, they often end on like, end on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah. don't want to deal with that while waiting week to week for essentially 12 to 20 pages of a comic. Right. Um, that makes sense. And I have a reader app, so I, I pay two bucks a month for it. And then I just like binge read it every now and then. Um, but it's the series started in 1997, still going on now. Um, and I, but I'm really happy I ca- I'm caught up, not just because I caught up, but because it like it was worth the journey. There's a couple of parts that 
weren't to my liking, but for the most part, um, I just really liked it. I think it lives up to the hype if you're an anime person. And for people intimidated by the length, it chunks really well because each arc really tells... It reminds me almost of the Dresden Files in that each arc tells its own self-contained story, often with its own villains and stuff. That might lay a little bit for the next arc or book, but is not... um, let the details aren't so fine that if you read them gapped you'll be completely lost because it, it you know it's doing similar stuff am i um, like you know i've seen like when i think or hear one piece i can picture like the main characters that kind of come to mind i've never read or watched any mm-hmm. of this but am i right and it's like a pirate ship crew yes. or something like that mm-hmm. okay the uh the main cast are called the Straw Hat Pirates. Their leader, his name is Luffy. Um, in the world, there's these fruit that if you eat them, they give you magical powers, but you can't swim anymore. Um, and so some of the characters have these magical powers, including the main character who is a rubber man. Um, so he's like bendy, and like bullets bounce off of him, and different things like that. It's a very stereotypical anime protagonist. Uh, he's dumb, likes to eat, ha- really feels passionately about supporting his friends, you know, the usual stuff. Um, but what I think works really well for the series is that each of the characters is really, each of them has moments to shine in each of their arcs, but they also all get a lot of in-depth treatment to their backstory and motives in a way that works really well. Um, and then the world itself is built in a really fun way but with some really deep lore um so it starts off more like they're trying to get to this ocean that most of uh, the pirates are on the main character his goal is to become king of the pirates in order to do that he has to get to the end of this ocean called the grand line and there's something called the one piece which no one knows what it is but if you have that it's basically concluded that you're the strongest pirate king of the pirates um and everybody else joins with him to help him with this goal as well as their own goals um, but they get mixed up in all sorts of things along the way. Um, and that's basically the story. I wrote a full review of it on, I actually started a website. It's called nerdyreferencelibrarian.com. Um, <laughs> and I, I wrote a full review of it. I have a section on there for anime and manga reviews. So if anybody wants to check it out, I talk about some of the things I don't think work for the series. There are moments that show its age, which is weird for an ongoing series. But if we think about like, you know, treatment of all sorts of things from 97. Um, you know, those early arcs have some rougher moments that if it was an old anime, it might not feel as jarring, but reading it in a modern light, knowing that it's still coming out, there's parts that are like, huh, I don't know how this makes me feel. But overall, really good journey. Nice. Um, and um, I yeah. do have one other question. Is there a delay? Like, it's still coming out, but like, when a new volume is released in the U.S., it's not concurrent with it being released in right. Japan, right? Like, so how far, like, how much of a delay so is there? One of the reasons I started reading on the app is because I'm actually, when I was reading in the app, I was about three volumes ahead of the English release for the the actual manga volumes. Okay. Um, so. COVID sort of threw some things off kilter. I think largely we're about one or two manga volumes behind. Um, But some of that can also depend on like any number of things. But it's about a 
I would say about two to three volume delay. I see. One piece yeah. they're pretty good about keeping like on top of it because it's such a big series. But even then, like you'll see covers come out with the you know the Japanese art and the Japanese writing on it um, way before the English ones. Yeah, yeah, Makes sense. Yep. Uh, so that's my that's that's your daily dose of anime here on uh, Unplugged Radio. <laughs> um, and Excellent. then the other. Yeah, you know, I just got to bring it back, right? And then the other book I wanted to talk about, um, I've been, I've been reading like a lot. Uh, if you are in the Discord, I posted my final stats of reading for 2022, and I think I hit. Oh, I have to double check, but I'm pretty sure I hit um, 225 or 236 different books. Whoa. Um. A good amount of that is manga, but I think there is still 42 or 56 books in there. Um, so I've been reading a lot of good stuff. I've been really jamming out to some horror. Um, and so I wanted to talk about uh, something I read a few months ago, but I think was one of my favorite books I read last year uh, called The Deep um, by Nick Cutter. I talked about The Troop two yes. Octobers ago. I remember Same that author. This one, it uh, the best description I have read is that it is if The Shining took place deep underwater and instead of being trapped in a hotel in the middle of the winter, you're trapped in an underwater research station and you're trapped because it's, you know, deep in the Marianas Trench. Mm -hmm. But it has all the different components that make The Shining work in that setting. Um, and that's basically the story. There's a global plague going on um, that causes it sort of manifests like super quick dementia um, and society sort of crumbling around this plague. And the main character has to go to this research station that is built inside a trench inside the Marianas Trench, which is a real place. I Google searched it, um, not the research station, but the trench. Mm -hmm. um, and he is being asked by essentially the remnants of the U.S. and or global government to go and talk to the scientists down there because they've lost contact. But before they lost contact, the scientists were pretty sure they might have found a cure to this disease. Um, and the reason he has to go down there is because his older brother, who's a brilliant scientist, is down there. And they're hoping that he can talk sense into him because the nature of this set like study center is that there's all these fail safes that make it very hard for someone to get down there. And if like the people down there are doing any sort of thing to try to be aggressive towards you, there's not a lot you can do because you're, I think it's two miles under the ocean. Um, so the amount of pressure and different things means you just, you don't have the ability to like aggressively take it back. Right. Um, and so he has to go there. He's been out of touch with said brother because his brother's kind of a jerk. But he goes there anyway because it's like, what are you going to do? Um, and very quickly it goes from like this plague story to you forgetting everything going on in the outside world because you're shut in this incredibly claustrophobic and weird setting with descriptions of water and stuff all around. Um, and there's some really cool signs mixed in. Apparently there's this thing called uh, Deep Sea Snow. Um what? Are either that's, of you from, that's from real? Me? Yes. No. Can't um, say I've I, ever experienced I, deep sea snow. <laughs> so it, it's essentially as things die in the higher layers of the ocean, they decompose, break down, 
the majority of their pieces are eaten by various creatures on the way down, but the remnants float to the ground. I see. Yep. And the deepest part of the ocean, it's just perpetually essentially looking like it's snowing. It's, yeah. And kind of wow. Yeah. That's really um, cool. And I was like, this can't be real. And I Googled it and it's a hundred percent real. And then like the discussion of pressure and the way it like bends the different things in the station and that's part of the thing design and again i googled i'm like oh this is actually how some of these things are designed it's very very cool so if you like there is some like eldritch evil stuff going on because humanity is in an area that maybe they shouldn't be right yeah, for sure um <laughs> but the the like that combined with the setting just works really really well so if you're like a creepy want to try a creepy story um the Troop by Nick Cutter was, I think, one, one of my favorite, if not my favorite book from last year. Um, it's, and it's, it's pretty short. But you just it said The Troop, good. but you meant this one is... I'm sorry, is the, the Deep. The Deep, yes. Yes. It's, yeah, I, I got some vibes similar to, like, The Fisherman, but rather than, you know, going back in time and referencing this, like, decades of ancient evil, it has a very, like... Um, Cthulhu, you know, something sleeps deep and we're waking it up kind of vibe. Right, different different idea. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. And you said it was short? It's uh It's like oh. 300 400 pages, so if oh, you're okay. reading yeah. You know, if you're no. reading fantasy books, that's that's short. It's an average book length. It's like kind of like a normal book, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I've been reading um I'm going to jump in here, Greg. Yeah, please. I finished uh, the first book of the second Mistborn trilogy. Um, it's not a trilogy, actually. It's four books now. Um, uh, the Alloy of Law. And it was really good. And then I started the second one. Um, it's called Shadows of Self. And I have like an hour left on the audiobook there. I'll probably finish it tomorrow. Uh, did not quite get it done for tonight, even though I drove all weekends for the tournament. Um, but they've been really fun. And they remind me a lot. Uh, you guys, neither of you have read them, right? No, I have not. They remind me, this second series, not the first one, but the second series reminds me a lot of Dresden in so many ways. Because the, the main character, the main character's name is Wax, and his partner is Wayne. It's very funny. Um, <laughs> but they're, and they're uh, Wax is like, and, and Wayne is a lunatic. Um, the, the main character is kind of a, uh, like, is a lawman in a detective in a lot of ways but also a uh fire and fury like going guns blazing kind of and it just parallels a lot of what dresden does the the books are a little bit shorter so they're a little bit more digestible there's kind of this overarching I, i'm only halfway through the series but there's this overarching bad guy plot going on kind of like in dresden there's the vampire clans and there's the uh the demon possessed guys. What are they called? Um, the mm, yes, the, the, um, the, the, the coins. Yeah, yeah Narius, Exactly. It's kind of got that idea where there's like a there's like a localized thing going on during the story, but then there's this there's this bigger plot, and you can see that they're kind of connected sometimes a little bit, and um, it feels just like Dresden though. Very fun. Just really, really fun. You um, it takes have place to in a, have it's read like a the first trilogy to read the second trilogy. As I understand Great it's question. a jump forward in time. It's a jump forward in time. It's the same world. So I, I would say no, but you miss out 
on some things by doing yeah. that. You miss out on the Easter eggs, like the um. I don't want to give anything away in case you decide to go this direction, but the the way they name things, like okay, you're in the city and there's a road and there's like and they went down to the corner of this road and that road and those roads are named after famous people from the previous series, right, right, right. and so they're, yeah, they're like little Easter eggs. I you you what you're missing out there, I think, is the like the importance of historical events, and you miss out on some of the the magic systems lore, like where it came from. But I think it presents itself well enough as a standalone to still be fun. So I don't know if that's a recommendation or not. I you think you could <laughs> go for it. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. How long are those? Are they shorter than the um, the Way of King books or? Way short. So the, the Mistborn, I mean, I'm talking audiobook hours here, right? The original Mistborn trilogy, those books were about 25 hours each. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And the, the new ones are like 12 or 13. Yep. So yeah, even if you wanted to go in for sure. it, it's not, yeah, it's not a terrible investment. And the new ones yeah. are, the new ones are quick. They're, they're definitely Dresden quick. Um, so yeah, highly I, recommend I've it. Been... Yeah, it's fun. And I think somebody just told me the other day on uh, Discord that they were or Discord or Facebook or something that they were reading um, the same book that I'm on right now. So uh, I've so, so, been in a couple are... of paint chats on the Discord and people have been talking about them. And then I have another Discord. I'm part of a retro video game Discord, actually, but they have a book channel and there's like six really people really into that series and constantly recommending it. I would recommend. I think you both really enjoy it. That sounds good. I've been reading a lot, a lot, a lot, and um, I have three books I have to talk about because in the past month I've read more than these three books, but these ones were I. I just have to recommend them. They were that good. Uh, so, <laughs> so the first one is called The Silent Patient by Alex Michaelides. It's from 2019. Uh, this is uh, like a psychological thriller. And it, I listened to the audiobook. It was very well done. Good narration. Two narrators, uh, because the chapters go back and forth between um, a female uh, character and a male character's perspectives. Um, Basically, uh, it's it's a British uh, book. It's about this therapist who is obsessed with um, a case and the patient uh, in that case. Basically, there was this woman who uh, was a pretty famous and successful artist um, in a high-profile marriage to a guy who was a very, uh, you know, famous and successful photographer. And by all accounts, they were in a, like, the perfect relationship and things were great. Then all of a sudden, um, one day, uh, cops arrive uh, at the house because the neighbors report uh, gunshots. They find that she has uh, shot her husband in the face repeatedly uh, and slashed her wrists 
and is uh, bleeding out, and they are able to save her. Um, and there seems to be no explanation for this crime. And after committing this murder, she becomes silent. And she doesn't talk. And so she ends up getting um, committed to, like, an inpatient... Um, uh, treatment center for people with mental illness rather than being in a traditional prison. And this therapist, like, it, the case was on, like, national, you know, news. And so he had heard about it and became fascinated with it. And a job, at the beginning of the book, a job opens up at this facility. And so he goes to work there because he thinks, you know, he's been following this for so long. He, he thinks he can get the uh, woman to talk again and that there must be some part to this case that you know hasn't been uh resolved and that nobody knows and by getting her to talk the truth will come out and so it goes all sorts of wild places from there but it's really a uh, kind of gripping uh start and it was it was well done uh the second book i want to talk about is called the book eaters by sunya dean that came out last year, uh, August 2022. I read this one on my Kindle. Also a British author and set in England. Uh, this book is a fantasy novel, and it was so unexpected. It was so cool because it is a very completely original idea. Um, and it feels kind of akin to vampires but what if somebody like created vampires from the ground up and instead of following all the established tropes they just kind of invented their own um so that's not a perfect analogy because they're not vampires they're called book eaters and they eat books they're, <laughs> they're not human um there is some backstory but a lot of the backstory about where they come from is kind of shrouded in mystery but you do get uh pieces revealed in dribs and drabs as you read but basically the book eaters um present themselves they look human but they uh consume books when they eat books they gain the knowledge of the book right so it's as if they've uh kind of like read it but they they retain the information much better than a human reading a book could. So they could learn languages, you know, by reading a dictionary in a different language, something like that. Um, they also have, they live long lives, but they run the risk of uh, basically going insane if they eat too many different things because their minds get overfilled with knowledge, uh, which is okay. interesting. They, they're extremely strong. Um, so they can just, like, snapping a human's neck it requires minimal effort. They can run really fast. Um, now, they've existed in society and around the world for a long time. But in modern times, they've uh, been become disconnected from each other because they don't really interact with human society. They try to do it as little as possible. And... So they don't have identities, and so now they can't cross borders, if that makes sense. 
So it focuses okay. on like the book eaters in it, England, but it references that it, there are other book eater societies in other worlds. It sounds like somebody wants sorry. to ask a question. Yeah, yeah. Did you say this? They look like humans. But yeah, they they seem like humans um, until they. I mean, they have like specialized teeth. Eat books. Um, so that's but you. That's why they can't cross borders though, because they. They'd have to exist in human society. Human society, which which they try to interact with humans as little as possible. Gotcha. So basically, it 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 focuses on the book eaters that are in England, and there's like five or six families, like ancient families, that are still going, and they have this problem where um, they're giving birth to fewer and fewer um, girls. And the book eater women can only conceive two children, and then they basically um, become infertile. And they don't want to, uh, you know, run into the problems of incest and genetic disorder that, uh, like, humans can run into as well, like you would get with noble families. So they have this archaic kind of system set up where the girls are... Raised in kind of, uh, they're kept ignorant of a lot of what's actually happening, and they're only supposed to read fairy tales, and they're taught that they're princesses, and then when they come of age, there's like a big wedding where they get married off to another family, um, and then they're supposed to bear a child. Or, they're being bred. They're being basically. bred, yeah. Bear a child yeah. for the, um, the like head of that family raise the child until the child is three and then they leave and they uh, get married off to a second family and they repeat the process and then they go back to live in their original home. They become referred to as an aunt and they live there, uh, you know, until they pass away. And so it's, it's, it's obviously a, a pretty shitty deal. Um, so the main character is a book eater woman and basically she doesn't stand for this. She wants to stay with her children and protect her children and, and, you know, kind of break with society. And so it's about her story and it, the way it's told is like, you're reading things that are happening in the present where she's run away um, and taken her child with her. But then you're presented with flashbacks from her as a little girl, and then eventually those flashbacks catch up to the present. Um, so it, the way the pacing of the book for that reason is very gripping because it'll get to a really intense moment in the present, and then it'll go to a flashback, and it'll help you understand what's happening in the present better, and then it'll come to a really intense moment, and then you go back to the present. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've read other books in that uh, pacing. It was really good, and it was very original. Is it a standalone, or is it a, a series? So it is a standalone at the moment, but the author has said she plans to revisit the world and perhaps the characters uh, in the future, but she has um, several other... She's like, uh, you know, signed contracts, so she has to write several other books before she can return um, to the book eaters. But it was, you could just read it on its own and, and probably never pick up a sequel 
um, and be satisfied. Uh, or if you like it as much as I do, you'll be looking forward to uh, a sequel forthcoming. Sure. That was really good. And then the, the last one is uh, Hellbent by Lee Bardugo, which is the sequel to Ninth House. Talked about Ninth House on here before. Uh, I won't go into any detail about Hellbent because might not have read Ninth House, and so this would be laden with spoilers, but I will once again say that you need to read Ninth House. It's very, very, very good. It's super dark urban fantasy. Uh, it's set in New Haven, Connecticut, and that's awesome. It's at Yale. It basically, my short spiel for it, imagine that the secret societies of Yale, which are real, um, actually practiced magic. But magic oh. isn't like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or any other magic system you're familiar with. It's people, uh, you know, making pretty dark sacrifices to learn what are generally mundane things but can lead to power. Um, so, you know, like, Reciting some rituals uh, around a uh, stone that is a nexus of power while you cut open uh, your sacrifice and you spill their guts. And then you have an edge on, you know, what's going to happen with the stock market next week. That type of thing. Okay. Um, and the ninth house refers to one of these secret societies. Uh, and this one is the one that's actually made up called Lethe. And their purpose is to monitor the goings-on of the other societies and make sure that they don't abuse their power. Because well, who would have thunk it? But in <laughs> Yale's long-storied past uh, of abuses of power, which are real, um, the secret societies have also done some pretty messed up stuff. So Lethe exists kind of as an oversight group. And they don't necessarily have magic of their own. And so the main character uh, is brought in as an initiate to uh, the Ninth House. And she's a very unconventional candidate. Generally, it's they pick people who are already accepted at Yale and, you know, they've been scouting who might be a good recruit. And then they bring them into the fold. Whereas this girl, Alex, was uh, recruited um, because they had heard about her. She has some unique talents that Lethe was interested in. And so they bring her in. And so she's like a fish out of water. She, she comes from a very rough upbringing um, and she has experienced a lot of trauma. And she's in this world of extreme privilege uh, and people, you know, who are meddling with dark powers and learning that, ooh, okay, like Lethe actually is supposed to be keeping the societies in line, but a lot of it is them turning a blind eye because, you know, uh, they kind of exist at the whim and pleasure of these other societies. And uh, there's a lot of they corruption. something out of it, too. Yeah, but she's, yeah. you know, she feels no need to be um, upholding the status quo because she's not part of this world. Um, so she really throws a wrench into everything. But it, it's just it's so good. <laughs> I, I really, really uh, would recommend anybody who likes fantasy try Ninth House and the Hellbent sequel. Uh, and there will be a third book at some point forthcoming. It is a, a trilogy. So 
Those are my book recommendations. Well, Jake, what other kinds of uh, media you got? <laughs> uh, I could go at length about D- uh, about video games I well, play, but let's jump we, into D and D. Let's jump to D and D. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. All right. Um. So I I know you guys have been playing a lot. Um. Uh. Didn't you just finish uh, Tomb of Horrors? Not quite, but we've okay. been playing it, and I think I think it'd be fun to, for Greg to talk about the experience. We're basically they they got to the end, got boss. We just didn't do the fight yet. But sure. like, okay. we're gonna we're gonna log in in three days here and just have that final encounter, and then it's yeah, yeah. So Jake, you had you had actually talked about Tomb of Horrors on the podcast, mm-hmm. maybe yeah, I think a like year or maybe two, two years ago. Yeah. yeah, not that long ago. Yeah, so. Uh, if you don't know the backstory, and I'm probably the least qualified person out of the three of us to talk about the backstory, but it is an old uh, school adventure. It's fairly short. It is not meant to be balanced or fair. Mm-hmm. It's uh, basically nice. it's meant um, to kill <laughs> characters. Gary Gygax wrote it because he got tired of nerds at conventions telling him that the adventures they'd written previously were too easy. Okay. So he wrote the adventure basically as like a big middle finger to everyone who told him his other adventures were easy. And it primarily uses like puzzles and traps rather than creatures to do its like deadly work. There's very little fighting in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, you know, John, the group that he DMs that I'm a part of, we've been going for years and years at this point, and we've been... Since 2013. We're coming up on 10 oh years. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and not everybody who's playing now is an original member, and some people have kind of come right. in and out. But, you know, it's existed in one form or another for a long time. But for a long time, it's also been um, done through Roll20, because uh, of our living situation, so even before the pandemic. But we do still try every once in a while to get everybody in the same room to roll some dice and have a longer in-person session. And so we had the opportunity uh, to do just that during the winter break. And we decided rather than play our normal campaign, let's try Tomb of Horrors because it's shorter. It could, in theory at least, be over in one long session because we were planning to just kind of get together early and and game all day um and so john had us each write uh two characters you know one as the primary one you were gonna rock up with and and a backup uh, assuming that there would be quite a few deaths and you know different approach try and like uh, game the system as much as you can i mean not that we had any idea of what the particular traps or um puzzles would be but you know build characters that could handle those types of situations so uh, do we want to go into spoiler territory for this or do we want to just speak about it more generally or i think it'll be more fun if we talk about spoilers but spoiler alert yeah if you, yeah. <laughs> so if, if you want to play in this adventure or you're in the middle of playing this adventure you know uh, probably don't listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think the funniest part, so my, I, I really am enjoying my character and I'm planning to play this character at some point in a future campaign. Um, 
just say that because the characters we wrote were level 12 just say it's the level one version but you know i've been painting these classic dwarfs and a lot of dwarf slayers and i was like yeah my character would just be a dwarf slayer and so he's snorri uh snorri the troll snorri the troll splitter and he's a dwarf slayer which if you're not familiar means he broke an oath uh at some point and it was so severe that he has um shaved off his beard uh dyes his hair and his regrown beard orange uh, and seeks uh, glory through death against the nastiest monster he can find. It's the only way to atone for his sins. And so I have out of the group really the only character who can fight, which is fine. You would think maybe a, you know, a naked reckless dwarf wouldn't be good for this type of encounter, but because that's how he wants to go out, he really does not want to die to a stupid trap puzzle. So he's very cautious <laughs> in some situations um, and very reckless when there is a big baddie for him to, to toss down with. So he's, he's still going strong, which is impressive because only two out of the six of us have our original characters still. Um, but yeah, we did not come anywhere near clearing this in the first sitting, which I don't know how long we played for, maybe eight hours. I feel like uh not longer. Uh yeah, it was it was eight hours or yeah. so. Yeah. Um which is a long which it's a lot. part of the reason why I don't know why any of us expected this. We were like the adventure will start with us at the entrance to the tomb of horrors. No. John's yeah, why like, would yeah. Sounds like <laughs> you, you you know the Tomb of Horrors is somewhere around this hill. And then we spent like 90 minutes trying to get into the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and that uh, was really frustrating for some uh, of the group members. Uh but you, we figured it out. I mean, you you got to dig and it's like dig and you think you found the entrance and then it's a false entrance and then you dig and you think you found it and it's another false entrance and it's oh my god we finally get in and um we made pretty good progress once we got in there I, there were definitely things that we were missing that in uh our second and third session we ended up having to go back to like rediscover i felt like we were able to do a pretty good job of um navigating some situations now some of this again like i don't know without us having prepared characters that were meant to kind of break the game a little bit i don't know how we would have done this so there was like a series of i don't know how many doors like and it, it felt like it went on forever like a locked door that only opens in a certain way we can't figure out the way to do it and so somebody's like well i have 12 scrolls of chime it's just like or knock whatever it is that just like opens a door i guess we're gonna keep burning those like without those you know forget it um there's another area where you're just constantly getting shot by arrows which was really only a minor nuisance um the thing is, the little damages do add up, and then when you come across monsters, it's not like we really are, are taking time to rest. Um, but John had allowed us to get uh, some magic items, and so I had these 
uh, my character sheets across the room, but they're, I forget exactly what they're called, gloves of arrow snatching or something like that. And I, I was just able to catch all of these little arrows, which felt great. Uh, awesome. As we were going through, <laughs> um, there were a lot of things that got hung up on, like, oh, this is color coded above this archway. Is that a thing? It's and a dungeon that lends it. itself to like paranoia around things that might yes. be nothing. Yes. <laughs> so, and I know your group is particularly prone to that. So, when yes, we got to are. our first spot where we felt like we were stuck, right? We got to the first spot where we felt like we were stuck. We had made some decent progress. We're like, all right, well, there's this portal that doesn't seem to lead us anywhere good. And then there's this, like, leering demon mouth that's open, and you could fit through it. And we threw something through it, and we don't know where it went. And we stuck a candle halfway in it. And when we pulled it back out, it exploded. Um could that be the way forward? And Jeff's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm going to climb in. And I was like, you're going to do that? He's like, yep. I'm like, all right, good idea. And <laughs> we kind of like took a group vote and uh, the vote was against Jeff, but he just kept trying to argue that it was a good idea. So the vote swayed in his opinion. And then he goes through and uh, gets obliterated. <laughs> 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 and so his character was dead. His healer was dead. Um, and we were like, wow, now we don't have a cleric. That's that's great. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We figure out the way forward, right? We keep proceeding. Um, then we find, you know, another one of these uh, portals that seems to teleport somewhere. Great. Let's send our, our other. Now we have another cleric. Let's send him through there. He goes through. John's like, oh, you, you end up back at the entrance to the dungeon and you're completely naked. You've lost all your stuff. And, <laughs> and we're like, uh, Mike, uh, your 30 potions of healing you were lugging around? Yeah, they're gone. So, you know, a, a series of decisions like that kind of hampered us right from the beginning. Sure. <laughs> But they were still welcome to the Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, they were yes. still all yep. well and good. I some of my favorite moments. There was a um, like an Indiana Jones uh, type moment of the giant boulder rolling towards you, and the two characters who were nearest to it were like, oh, "We got to run away!" But oh, I know what to do. What was, what is that item that Mark had? Uh, immovable, immovable rod. rod. He's like, I'll just put. John described the boulder like completely fills the space of the hallway. He's like, I'll put this immovable rod here, and then it'll stop the boulder because it's immovable. And but for good measure, we'll run a, a safe distance away anyway. And John's like, All right, boulder hits the immovable rod, and we're all like, Uh huh, uh huh, kind of like rubbing our hands together. He's like. Let me do a little calculation. Ba, 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 ba. It applies. Okay. It applies. And he says some astronomical number, the amount of force it applies to the immovable rod. He's like, the immovable rod shatters. Uh, how far did you move? Okay. Uh, the <laughs> boulder rolls and completely squashes you. You are flattened against the floor. <laughs> you are absolutely dead. <laughs> their faces are like, uh, I'm what now? <laughs> uh was a... I think one of my favorite moments when we played Tomb of Horrors, um, and I know you all had this pop up too, 
there's a there's like a room where there is a throne with a crown yeah. and a scepter. Yeah. Yep. There's other stuff in the room, but like that's the standout feature. And I and I'm pretty sure your character, Greg, yeah. put said crown on. You sure did. <laughs> You've successfully figured out how to get said crown off. My character failed if you use scepter and combination of actions incorrectly. You turn to dust. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's how that's how my character died. I tapped the wrong <laughs> end of a thing and it was like, poof, you're dust. I'm like, I'm what now? <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. You're that's just game over for you right now. Yep. But yeah. my favorite part of all that was that in order to access the final like room with the actual boss at the end of the dungeon, you need a special key. Um, and my character was holding it, which meant the key turned to dust, and the party could not remember where they got the key to check if it came back. Oh, ouch! <laughs> so we got really to the end of the that. dungeon, and we're like, "It's locked." And they're like, and "My brother was like, uh huh," and we're like where's the key and they were like shoot jake's other character had it and I was like, <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> yep so that um I, before we got to that part because that was great and uh i didn't i uh, and i did a series of things that led us do uh, the final right. boss yep. and afterwards john was like there were like three or four decisions greg made kind of haphazardly that resulted in it what would have killed him yeah but it didn't um you know but before that we had reached a point uh it was our third session um where we really had no idea what to do we kind of had exhausted our options and um totally lost in particular one of our party members uh played by mike mike was really uh frustrated and he was like ready to just give up he's like well the adventure's over we're done we failed i'm ready to give up and he walked into we had like (laughs) found an area that was like filled with a weird mist and we had used a spell to not uh come into contact with the mist for one of our characters and they found like some stuff, and then we were like, that's it for this area. Well, Mike was like, maybe there's something in there, and he just, like, he didn't care anymore, so he just ran in there. And he basically became brain dead. And so he just had to, like, he was just kind of quietly following along the other party members, and this was right after he had raged that he didn't want to play anymore, but now his, like, character couldn't talk. (laughs) He was just sitting there. We're on, um, uh, we're on zoom while we're playing and I could just see him like sitting there and fuming in the background. But uh, (laughs) like we hit the point where we're like, all right, John, you just have to tell us like where to go next. And it'll be like, if you've ever done an escape room, it felt a lot like that Mm -hmm. where there's somebody watching you the game master and they might offer you a clue if you're stuck. And then you feel a little right. bit like, oh, man, I didn't quite figure it we out. We didn't on our get own. it. We yep. had to take a clue. <laughs> that was basically this situation. There was just a, a freaking the only way forward was through a hidden door that we had checked. We thought very thoroughly for all the possible hidden doors, and we just didn't check this spot. And we were never going to check that spot, no matter what we did. So pra- Practically speaking, yeah, you were never you're never going to find John it. John just kind of helped guide us to it. And then we were able to make 
uh, the rest of the progress on the way. I will say, I was thoroughly disappointed with our group. I, I had, what I, I character Snorri agreed, was an act of brilliance, had put on this crown, lifted the scepter, you know, unlocked doors, figured out all this great stuff. And then I, un, you know, I came into a room and I just lifted this little uh, lid and out came a freaking genie. And he said, I'll grant you three wishes. And I was like, this is amazing. But, sure. but Greg, me, knew that Snorri's wishes would be for the most powerful monsters the genie could summon to uh, be teleported into this dungeon with us for me to fight. Deliver a glorious <laughs> death, right. And I knew my party members wouldn't appreciate that. So there were three, wouldn't take kindly to it. <laughs> three party members with me. Uh, well, there was four, but one of them was brain dead. So I was like, hey, you three, I feel generous right now. I already have my crown and my scepter. Why don't you three each ask a wish? And their wishes were so freaking lame. <laughs> they could have had anything. And they squandered them. They they really they really did ask for very lame things. I was like, really? That's what you're wishing for? Didn't one of them ask for like oh. the strongest healing strongest potion? healing potion? Just yes. one of them. Just, yes. just one. Just one. Just just one. Not not a not a pack full. Just one. Okay. <laughs> the other one was like they thought they had a monkey's paw, right? Show like, me where know, to go Okay, next. how are they gonna? Okay, like we could have figured that out on our own. And then the other one was like, you know, give give Mike's character their intelligence back, which, okay. Fine. <laughs> I, <laughs> suppose, I suppose. <laughs> we have to. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. They definitely, like, you just have to know there are going to be moments where you're probably going to get stuck, and uh, mm -hmm. it can be very frustrating, because you think, like, what yeah. the hell else is there to do? I've done everything! Um, and yeah, like it's it's kind of designed like that, and there are going to be some moments where you might think, "Oh, that was that felt like a cheap death," but yeah, stuck but your overall, hand in the fire, was... you got burned, like you know. <laughs> yeah, but but overall, it was fun. Oh, I yeah. mean, just a very different experience, and kind of nice as a one-off to just be like, "Hey, listen, this is going to be tough. Let's just do it for doing something different," and then you know, it was good. And either, you know, when we when we fight the final, we fight the Lich, either we end up defeating him, and that's a great victory, or Snorri dies, and that's also a great victory. So, Watch it be like a Godric and Felix ending. You know, mo most of your party dies, but you somehow survive, and you're like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I actually started a D&D &D campaign um, at the beginning of January that I've been, I think, talking about doing for a while now. And I'm sure I've talked to you all about this in bits and pieces. Um, are you both familiar with the Dark Sun campaign setting? A little bit. Well, I've never so played far as it. you've talked about it before. Okay. Well, so quick, very brief overview. Um, Dark Sun was a D&D &D setting that was created in, like, second edition D&D. And really, it was created to try to give a very alternative setting to play D&D &D in. Um, 
the entire world is undergoing like ecological collapse because magic draws from the life force of plants around it. But if you draw too deeply, it turns the soil in the area barren and the more powerful spell you cast or the more you draw, the wider an area does this. Naturally, bad people in the world don't care about that. And so do rituals that are super, super powerful and have created large chunks of the world to be like um, just ash waste almost and big desert and different things like that. And so the campaign setting is a series of city-states ruled over by immortal sorcerer kings with um, them basically tyrannically ruling everyone because no one else power right right yeah um and so in the setting spellcasters particularly arcane spellcasters are exceedingly rare because if you publicly spellcast one the sorcerer kings make it illegal unless if you worship them and two let's say for instance the sorcerer king's agents don't notice you everyday people know it's killing the world so they don't like it right there is a way to cast they're called preservers um where you don't drain everything but you uh the the temptation's always there even for preservers um and so the setting itself is really interesting because most D in some way or another uses like iconic dungeons and locations to really engage the party and uses maybe like gear and different things in dark sun because everything is sort of junky and sort of post-apocalyptic it's more of a societal like political upheaval um dungeons are there but they're not a core component of it instead most of the big like storylines they've done have been about like slave group uprisings to kill one of the sorcerer kings or um different groups of people uncovering ancient artifacts to try to help other groups or you know quiet rebellions in the merchants quarter different things like that um which was really revolutionary when it came out in the second edition and i think ages really well in the current reign of DD when like those bigger stories are what we're more focused on rather than like you go into this dungeon get the loot kind of thing um but what's really cool about the setting from a player perspective is that the way the setting is done you need to do a series of restrictions to make it work which really freshens up the pacing and the tempo of DD. My group's been playing 5e since it came out and we've been enjoying it but it's been growing a little stale we've noticed like similar kind of patterns of characters are in every one of our parties which change basically mean the dynamic shifts to a similar dynamic every campaign even if we do wildly different storylines just with different um, players playing them different people playing them exactly because like yeah, someone will be like oh that character looked awesome i want to give them a try the next campaign but then because like we have almost always had a paladin and a bard in every single one of our campaigns that sort of we only play with five to you know six people two people basically always playing a similar combo defines the way the group plays right um but dark sun removes the majority of the traditional fantasy creatures and races that you can play out from the equation and then the ones that are there are drastically changed so one of my favorite takes is uh, halflings are um, they live in one of the bands of original jungles that have survived, but they are cannibals that are like extremely xenophobic and uh, basically attack people on site because they want to preserve what little jungle they have left. Um, 
And then there you can play Thrycreen, which are this really cool bug race, or half giants, or malls, which are sort of half dwarf, half human. Uh, elves are bandits that live in the desert and really emphasize running and sort of being sneaky and whatnot. That's cool. um, so it it really just mixes things up. Dwarves are hairless, and all of them have this thing called a focus, where it's shockingly the focus of their life at that point and if they go against their focus when they die they turn into banshees so they try not to turn against their focus but it means that like they're really really driven um to follow this one thing you know really determinedly um and it's been really fun playing it because my group um We've, we've completely shaken up the balance. We have an almost all martial group. Um, I noticed as we were playing more and more 5e, we were leaning more into spellcasting heavy groups, which makes sense because, you know, martial classes are fun, but once you see what a wizard at, like, 10th or 12th level can do or, like, you know, cleric, it's tough to be like, yeah, I'll just play a regular fighter, right? Um, but this setting forces the group to not do those things because... It outright bans a bunch of stuff. I found a fan-made update for Dark Sun for 5e, um, and then we added some extra layers on top of that. So you can't play Warlocks, you can't play Sorcerers, you can't play um, Paladins. Clerics are limited to four different domains, um, and you can't play Bards because basically everything's about really emphasizing like there's Druids, there's Clerics, and then there's wizards who are either preservers or defilers, and that choice really defines how they interact with the world. So the majority of our party is like, we have a ranger, we have a rogue fighter, we have a barbarian, we have, um, I found a gladiator class, because gladiators are really big in the, the setting. Um, we have a druid, but the druid, which sometimes can feel like a slightly underwhelming caster class, feels really special, because they're the only actual caster in the group now. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really, my group has had three sessions now. Um, they're starting as forced gladiators to try to, um, the Sorcerer King in the city they're starting in called Tyr is building a ziggurat and has been for decades now. But he's been really pushing the different nobles to send workers and slaves to force finish it for the last, like, two or three years in a very kind of frantic pace no one knows what the purpose of it is but once it's done there's going to be a huge games in the arena and whatever gladiator team wins is going to get freedom and our group is starting as gladiators and so they're making choices of whether or not they want to train to try to win their freedom or lead you know a rebellion or a revolt of some sort there's other factions in the city trying to hook them up with stuff um and it's it's been really cool seeing them interact with the world without the normal things DD has so like they can't have equipment because they're you know they're in they're captured and they're not allowed to keep weapons so only during training sessions do they get equipment so they have equipment they can go and get during these things and then they immediately don't have it anymore but because of that they're not like asking like about loot about gear and a lot of our challenges have been skill based because the trainers aren't trying to kill them they're trying to train them mm -hmm. um and the the group has said a couple of times that like all of these subtle changes while keeping core D, D has forced them to interact in different ways so they've really i think this might be the strongest group dynamic i've had in a group by this early in the campaign for a while because they have to 
work together. I also gave each of them hidden information and contacts within this structure so that they could decide if they want to contact, like, there's like a thieves guild and there's like a rebellion group and different things like that. But it's been really cool seeing how to interact. Um, there's a couple cool fun rules that the setting adds in these like fan made rules, such as uh, they do super crits. So Dark Sun's supposed to be super like a really brutal setting. And one thing I've always disliked about D&D in general with 5e is that if you roll a critical hit, but you roll really bad on your damage die, it really sucks when you do less damage with that crit than a normal hit. But say you roll two ones or something. Yeah, they're kind of lame. In Dark Sun, they recommend your first weapon die does max damage and then you roll a second one. Um, Which means that the crits do an insane amount of damage, but it also means that every time you roll a crit, if it's me, they immediately get terrified. If it's them, they get super hyped and like are cheering even before the damage roll happens, which is really cool around the table. Um, I, heard, I heard that in the uh, the new playtest versions of the rules, um, uh, the DMs don't get crits. Interesting. Yeah, huh. only player only players can get crits. I think as a storytelling mechanic, that's, it's more interesting good. to just let yeah. it for the let the players have it, and it makes it better for balance sake too. Yeah, hey, Jake. Question uh, that was kind of a. Uh, just a in yeah um, whatever you want to call that there um with the dming though do you find it challenging to flip back and forth between settings and still maintain like your grasp on the world when your characters ask you questions and stuff um so i would say yes except for i haven't dm'd actually for probably about a year um, my oh, brother, you're not DMing this. I'm DMing this one, but I had a oh. big break. Oh, okay. So I've actually had like two or three months of reading some of the Dark Sun books and that including the fiction books to really like embed myself in it, gotcha. um, which has really helped. And I've been because I've been sort of playing around with doing this for a while now, I, I've been really thinking about how to to do it, which I think helped me get amped up. Um once they spread because right now one of the benefits of the the, the way we're starting because this is almost all like homebrew stuff rather than pre-made which i generally lean more towards pre-made um, but one of the advantages of the starting is that they have a very small area they're interacting in because they literally can't leave right now um ah. once they have a wider range that they can like they can leave the city i'm going to need to like do deeper research um and because this setting is so unique it's not like like I don't know. Forgotten Realms, one of the reasons I think it works is because beyond unique spots, it's just a fantasy world. So it, you can plug whatever you want in yeah, it. Makes I, sense. Exactly. But like in this world, there aren't goblins or orcs at all, right? There aren't gnomes. There's so many things that just don't exist in the world that I'm being very like, I have to be very purposeful every time I don't plug in something that I don't know overtly is in the world. Gotcha. Um, uh, and so it, it's been one of the fun challenges, though, because it means that I'm I'm spending as much time reading up like background lore and stuff, and then gaining ideas from that. Whereas normally I just be like, I know what this is. I don't need to research it more, you know. Right, right. No, that's 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 a good perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been really cool. It it we were as a group feeling a little down on D and D. We're feeling like, you know we're having fun doing it, but it was feeling a little stale. And so this has really freshened it up. Ironically, like. A couple weeks after we started, all the stuff with the open game license popped up. 
and um, my group start looking at Pathfinder, but the rule set just is too complicated to transfer over with both the setting we don't understand and a rule set we don't understand. Um, so we're sticking with 5e because we're still having fun um, and then just enjoying being able to layer special rules on. We just discovered a new like fan-made version of uh, death saving throws that we really like for this. Um, it's so you know normally with like a death saving throw if someone like heals you you get all your death saving throws back and even if it's just like a healing word and you get two hit points you pop up you're good right right in dark sun they recommend so that the injuries feel more long lasting that you lose death saving throws once of long rest so if you had like two fails you still have one after a long rest. And then if at any point you have two death saving throws, you get a, um, you roll in the injury chart in the DMG. Um, uh, so it makes, it makes combat a lot more brutal. It means that like the party needs to take diff like even minor threats more seriously. Cause you can't just like magic healing, pop the person back up with no repercussions. Um, and a lot of the injuries on the injury chart, you heal over time anyway, but ironically, my party, like, they had their first real arena fight. They were fighting uh, another team, but rather than fighting the team, they were trying to kill the most giant spiders. Um, and then the party, for some reason, got bloodlust and decided they wanted to start a fight with the other gladiator group. They won the game and then used their performance to persuade the audience to demand fights between the teams rather than just, like, a winner. And one of the people who was central to pushing that got knocked out, had two deaths um, fails, and got permanently scarred so that they take penalties on persuasion checks that aren't intimidation, and that's one of their core, like, character features. <laughs> oh, wow. Ouch. <laughs> but they're really excited, because they're like, it's fine, our group isn't really wanting me to be charming anyway, so now I'll just be really intimidating. And I'm like, okay, that's a good perspective to take. And I told them, like, I don't think a scar on your face would stop you from, like, being like wouldn't give disadvantage in certain persuasion chances sure. like if you're like yeah this is what happened and i saw it why would a scar impact someone trusting you that but if it's like you're trying to charm someone and to ignore something that trying might, to sweet talk yeah. somebody yeah right that's different um but so it's been fun it, i don't anyone who's like really enjoyed D D, but maybe has been playing for a while and just wants to mix things up i think switching settings in general can be a really cool way to force your group out of their comfort zones um and i think uh i love the choice dnd brings to the table but i think some forced um limitations on character design and like picking race class different things like that can really emphasize some different classes that maybe don't get as much love um sure. so that's been cool i'm waiting for dark sun has a lot of psionic powers in it and none of my players have taken a psionic class yet but i bought a fan-made psionic like handbook so that i can use creatures with it against them so i'm really looking forward to that jake are you using um i was looking stuff up while you were talking mm -hmm. i don't know if i'm pronouncing this right athos.org is that athos um, is the, I believe... the dark sun setting yeah Athos is the Dark Sun setting. Um, Athos.org says the... the official Dark Sun website, and it, it seems to be a lot of this stuff has um, been posted within the past few months that's on here. There's resources. There's 
So athis.org has a lot of great resources, but they don't, um, I don't think they have stuff for D&D 5e because technically that's like everything they have is fan made under. So I think those are written for 3.5. Okay. Um, I'll have to look what it's called. I found it's like, so um, if you just Google search Dark Sun 5th edition, uh, rules there's like a gm binder pdf that's a fan pdf put together um and there's like some reddit threads that collect uh, i see what I've been yeah using. this is it's, a link it's yeah. on gmbinder.com mm-hmm. and it's just called like dark sun campaign dark sun campaign rules before out. yep yeah. Oh, yeah there it is and the only unfortunate thing about it is like the pdfs kind of get like it cuts off part of yeah, it, I but if you that. download it in different ways, you can see different parts of it. So we found if we print it, certain parts that are cut off are viewable. Um, but it does some really cool stuff, and you can still play traditional fantasy things, but because you're in such a different setting, I don't know. It, it's been really interesting. I really love the way they write the half-giants in Dark Sun, because half-giants are um, magically created in the setting to be like really powerful bodyguards and different things like that. Um, well, they were originally magically created. Now I think they're just like you know normal people. Um, but they mimic people they look up to, and so they have a rule that their alignment shifts depending on who they're looking up to. So one half of their alignment stays the same, but the other half fluctuates, and the player can decide which one of those is going to be static the whole time and which will change. So like. For instance, you could play a half-giant who's always lawful, but maybe if they start looking up to a different player, we'll switch between good, neutral, or evil, or vice versa. And so we've had some really fun role-playing where like, the party has been interacting with this NPC half-giant who has decided to start mimicking the way one of the other party member dresses. Mm-hmm. And her character... like has her hair up in a very fancy like braided bun and this half giant who does not have the dexterity or knowledge to do this has been trying to mimic it and so she's been doing this half giant's hair in like the mess hall and helping him with his face paint while he tries to like mimic her her clothing style and behavior which is a really fun like mechanic to play around with because it's a good way as a DM to like give nods that, huh, maybe you didn't do something impressive there if the giant comes back mimicking someone else, you know? Um, and then we have a half giant in our group who has really enjoyed like mirroring what other players are doing in hysterical ways. So he'll just like repeat things that the other players are saying, but give like a like in a way that sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but he's using the word completely wrong. And he does it like while butting into conversations, and it's it's amazing. That's um <clears throat> not the type of things that typically happen with our card group. Like we don't, I don't know, we don't. Our players are more antagonistic to each other, and they just want to like be pain in the ass and fight each other half the time. <laughs> I think I think it um. It helps. I do have my brother and my friend Steve both have decided their characters are rivals. And so they're frequently working against each other in the various training sessions, both to each other's detriments while talking smack and other characters are actually winning the challenges and getting rewards. Um, so we have a little bit of that, but I think they pick that as like a role playing mechanic rather than legitimately <laughs> arguing or anything. Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's Dark Sun. I've been having a lot of fun with it. Um, I really want to give a shout out to Mike Adkins. He, oh man, this must have been a year or two ago. It, it's been a while. He gave me a Dark Sun campaign setting box set, which are pretty hard to come by. And he gave it to me because he knew I'd been interested in the setting. And I had like PDFs that I was using. But there's something about having it has this really cool cloth map that I roll out for my group every time so they can see what the world looks like. And uh, like, yeah, that's nice. you know, the art style for the setting is so cool. So I've really been enjoying having like some physical Dark Sun books to flip through. And that's um, largely thanks to Mike. So big shout out to Mike. Uh, I don't know if he still listens, but if he does, I'm finally playing Dark Sun, Mike. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm. Um... I think you'll be in agreement with me on this, but I'm going to make an executive decision. We started recording tonight about 45 minutes late due to some technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but then Craig saved us. Thank you, Craig, for saving the day. Um, Craig's the best. So our main topic tonight was planning to talk about uh, the Unplugged Monster Mash, which was a narrative Kings of War event I ran um, in uh, this month of January. But I think what we will do is we will hold off on that, and this will just be a nice big um, hobby and book and D&D update episode. And then when we come back in February, we'll uh, give you all the Kings of War content you're craving. We'll talk about the Unplug Monster Mash. We'll get uh, Rossi on here and, and, and have him talk about running Dead of Winter and John playing in Dead of Winter. So, um... Yeah, are you are you in agreement that this is a a decent plan? I think yeah, it's a good plan. All right, I think so too. <laughs> Love it. Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure. Um, the the door is open anytime. Yeah, thanks for coming to chat with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. And I hope you all uh, have a wonderful evening. I hope all you listeners out there take care of yourselves, and we'll catch you real soon with some. It's a war event coverage in our next episode. Excellent. Good night, everyone. Bye, Craig. Well.